0: I thought I would move faster than I did. But, you know, that's just the nature of working through Leviticus. I'd rather know it than rush through it, if that makes sense. So um, I didn't wrap up skin disease last week. We were right at an area that I didn't feel uh, would be be best to run through it. And so we're again, if you're looking at the Bible Project, we're still here on this third right here. And we're going to close the year out here Uh, next week. If I don't finish the rest of the skin the de- of all the ritual impurity or purity issues, we'll finish it up. But next week, we're going to kind of do a recap. And I'm hoping that we're going to have a chat together uh, over what we've learned. And I'm, I'm, I'm warning you, not so you'll skip next week. I see you. Don't be, miss, don't be missing now. Um, but I'd like to get together and talk about what we've learned. And we're going to kind of work through in blocks this one, this one here. So three, I call discussions. And I'm just going to have some prompting questions, but really I'm hoping we can talk through. And here's the things I want us to think about. How has Leviticus helped you understand Christ's sacrifice more fully? As believers, we understand the sacrifice, but how, is that in, how does that uh, maybe say deepened or broaden your perspective of what that is? I put some takeaway applications and insights from Leviticus. What are some things on a practical level that you are seeing that can be applied to life, maybe even applied directly to your life that you want to give maybe a and t- say, hey, I've learned this or I've been prompted through God's word to, to think about changing that in my life. And then I'm going to do a small recap to firmly settle kind of what we've learned because we make a big shift to the day of atonement which is really 16 and 17 is the importance of blood and dealing with it. And then we move to a mirrored look in Leviticus, but it's going to be on the moral side of purity, the qualifications for the priest. And then really interesting, the feast. I've always been fascinated with the feast. Ever since I was a teenager, I read a book. I can't find it. It was in my mom's library. I know exactly what it looks like, but I don't know what the title is. And I've looked, my mom remembers it like that same way, but we cannot find the book. But it explained them all. I've loved looking at the feast. I like eating. And so we'll close out Leviticus in the, in the early part of next year. But we want to understand that other left side well. And so we'll recap it. But I do want us to chat. I want it to be a conversation where we're, we're going back and forth. And, and when, when I use this, iron sharpens iron. So as we're here on a Wednesday night, I want to have that opportunity to dialogue a little bit and, and really maybe be able to grow together as a group on how we can take what we've learned and then what can we do to put it into practice. I know there's a few things in my mind that stands out from a more personal nature, and so I'll be able to share that, uh, but I'd like it to be less teachy and more talky, if that makes sense to use those baby terms, um, and we'll, we'll dive in. But this evening, we're going to wrap up or try to wrap out the skin disease and what it means to be cleansed and how you re-enter in the community of Israel, how you get restored to fellowship. I want to remind us of something because I know even when I go back to read it, my mind jumps there. Leprosy is a translation given for the Hebrew word tesserat, which does not mean the leprosy we think in our mind. It's not Hansen's disease. It's actually a whole range of skin afflictions and skin reactions from other diseases Rarely would it have been Hansen's disease, the leprosy we think of. Sadly, a lot of that's been depicted in like pictures from the New Testament and these communities that are unclean. We think it's always this horribly infectious disease. It was following the law that's stated here. And so as you watch Christ, and we'll talk about this, walk into leprous colonies. It wasn't colonies full of people with Hansen's disease. It was colonies full of people with unclean cleanliness that are separated from society. And so when you he, see him heal lepers, he's walking into the community that's been ostracized for uncleanness or depicting unholiness. That's God making holy. It couldn't be a more drastic illustration of fulfillment. So we're going to get to see that a little bit, but just remember that. Reading number one, obviously, will be the first one, and I'll talk for about half a page, and whoever is reading number one will want to pop up and and grab it. As we prepare for that, I want us to remember what we've seen from diseases so far. Um, If it spreads, it's infectious. If it's deeper than the skin, it's infectious. If it has a white or yellow hair, it depicts uncleanness. Actually, if it doesn't have a black hair, it almost said it was unclean, but if it had a black hair, it would be back to normal. Keep in mind the concept of wholeness, And I'm going to see here, I might be able to do this while I'm walking. Look at this. I'm going to have a microphone for everyone. Here you go. I can do this. I'm capable-ish of this. So if you're able to hold a mic, you just turn on to the green whenever reading number one comes. And you just grab your, go ahead and grab uh, whatever, uh, get the reading right out of your Bible there. Um, Reading number one in a minute. But remember this idea, wholeness is important. So wholeness depicts holiness, and so as you look at these skin diseases, when you have something on you, it affects part of you, which then destroys the wholeness, and the way that's really brought home was when you had spots all over you, it was a whole infection, and actually they were considered clean because the stuff was all over their body. So this idea of being whole was a picture of holiness, and that help them understand. So not picking on sick people. Everything that God does here is to drive the nation of Israel and to drive us to understand the implication of being in the presence of a holy God. In our society, we have tried and have done, in Christian society, to pull God down. He's our buddy, right? He's who we hang out with. An Israelite would never have that thought. By the way, neither should you. I've said it before. I'll say it again. When society tucks that in, whether it's a song or a poem or a saying or whatever it may be, it is demeaning who God is. God is not your buddy who hangs out with you. God is your God. And it's not that he's trying to be distant But you don't get close to God by making him like you. What is our calling? Be like Christ. We get close to God by being like him. Do you see it's a form of idolatry? To pull God down to me. To make him do what I do. To walk the muddy streets that I walk. To be with my buddies when I'm hanging out. That's silly. That's. Idolatrous. Instead, you're driven to see his holiness, and Israel is pulled to God as we should be. So, this is why this is here. It doesn't mean that this person is in themselves expressing a sin. It's not individual sin that was, was there, it was the depiction of sin. Um, there was protection from quarantining people. We know that if there's an infectious disease, it won't spread through the whole community. But the main point was still spiritual to recognize that this illness depicted the brokenness of humanity and that brokenness had to be separated. It cannot be in the presence of God, a holy God. It should weigh, and I just want to give a hint to this. Here is God teaching Israel what an illness depicts, which is sin, and why it causes separation from a holy people, a holy God, And then you think about Christ on the cross and God is not in the presence of sin. And what did he do on the cross? We say it over and over again. He did what? Took our what? Sins upon him. We've become casual with that, right? That's something that is easy to say. That was the torment for God. Christ's torture was the upcoming separation he would have with his father, which never happened in in infinity past. So I'm pretty adamant about it not being theoretical. I believe it was a literal taking of the sin on him. I think it was a literal turning of the back of the father, not a theoretical. There's people that write that. And I, I would dare to say it's heresy. I would tell them they're heretical. I would tell anybody, no matter how much I liked them, that's heresy. You are destroying the sacrifice, the reality of it. And Leviticus really helped is is when I say putting the nail deeper or stronger for me in my mind that it's extremely critical to understand what Christ did on the cross to fathom how how horrible it was for Him. But that's this separation, this idea. So you recognize what Christ did there, and so we're going to jump back into fourteen. Now let's remind ourselves. We've seen the birds, right? We're out outside of camp. We have two birds, we kill one, we dip the live one in the blood, we send it off, which is going to be a day of atonement replication. We're going to have a goat, two goats, one is killed, one is sent off, right? And, And it reminds us that grace is not cheap. They were reminded that cleansing cost a life. It required blood. What did Christ have to do on the cross? He had to give his what? Life. And he had to shed his blood. In other words, it's just not, they didn't make this up because he bled on the cross and died on the cross. He had to die on the cross and he had to bleed on the cross because it required blood and it took his death. There was nothing theoretical about it. If you look through the heresies of the day, actually, he never was fully human. He didn't really die on the cross. You go all through history, church history, you're going to see this constant change. And you'll find it's fascinating because Satan kind of repeats the same thing. We're going to try to make God not dying. We're going to try to make God not shedding his blood. We're going to try to make God not suffering. All these things because we don't want to have what we know we need satan doesn 't want us to see that is Christ fully man, fully God, dying on the cross, shedding his blood for the remission of sins, and so heresy 's roots often are in a distortion of what Christ has done and who Christ is, so we know grace is not cheap, but that 's not all that sacrifice so Whoever is reading number one, it's yours to grab uh, and, and take. Um, you have it on your phone or you can borrow my Bible, whatever you prefer. Oh, good to go. Um. Yeah, go up front and go ahead and grab the microphone if you're good with it and read into it just to be loud enough for everyone to see on the video, you know, otherwise they hear my voice incessantly, and trust me, I know that gets irritating, that's what Heather tells me. Um, Seven days of waiting, the sick one would take a lambs and go uh, to the entrance. Go ahead and read, uh, it's on the button right over here, yeah, so it's, you're live.
1: And on the eighth day, he shall take two he-lambs without blemish, and one ewe lamb, Of the first year without blemish, and three tenths deals of fine flour for a meat offering, mingled with oil, and one log of oil. And the priest that maketh him clean shall present the man that is to be made clean, and those things before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall take one he lamb and offer him for a trespass offering, and the log of oil, and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. And he shall slay the lamb in the place where he shall kill the sin offering and the burnt offering in the holy place. For as the sin offering is the priest, so is the trespass offering. It is most holy. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering. And the priest shall put it upon the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed. And upon the thumb of his right hand and upon the great toe of his right foot. And the priest shall take some of the log of oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand. And the priest shall dip his right finger in the oil that is in his left hand, and shall sprinkle of the oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. And the rest of the oil that is in his hand shall the priest put upon the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed, and upon the thumb of his right hand, and upon the great toe of his right foot. Upon the blood of the trespass offering, and the remnant of the oil that is in the priest's hand, he shall pour upon the head of him that is to be cleansed, and the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord. And the priest shall offer the sin offering and make an atonement for him that is to be cleansed from his uncleanness, and afterward he shall kill the burnt offering. And the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the meat offering upon the altar. And the priest shall make an atonement for him, and he shall be clean. Now,
0: if you're remembering verses or chapters one through five, even into actually all the seven, how many offerings did we have that we talked about? There was what five. It's good. It's good guess. It was, I like it. It's close. There's right. We had the burnt. We had the we had the purification. We had the trespass. We had the grain. And I'm already forgetting one. So there we go. See how, see how good I am there. We have to look at the, the Bible project. How many offerings are here? What do they bring to the, to the tabernacle to be cleansed? cleansed? Trespass, purification, burn offering, grain offering. There's oil. There's the, the host of the offerings are brought. I want you to see. We walk through every one of these offerings offered at different times. And when you're going to come back and be cleansed, what kind of offering are you give? Does give? Does cleansing cost something in the mind of the Israelite? They've seen it with the birds on the outside of camp and now they walk in and they're bringing every offering pretty much. The only one we're not seeing was the fellowship offering, which was the party or the feast afterwards. That's not part of this. So the four that are there, whew, I finally got it. It's nice to go. Yes, sir. Wave is usually the meal or the grain offering that's going to come in. So there's, it's, it's waved and then they will wave like the breast of the thing in front of the Lord and it depicts the action, depicts that. Kind of giving it to the God and then it comes back to them. It's waved before the Lord. It's not put on the altar to be burnt off. And so that is done with different components of the offering and depicts the action that the priest is taking again. And that usually ends up being for the priest and it's woven into, I think it's in the grain. It's also in the purification or trespass. There's woven into that as the, the wave portion of the offering. But what are you reminded of again when it costs a lot, what's not cheap? Fall on, Fall on God. Grace is not a cheap commodity. God is not a trivial God. Most of the pagan worship involved sacrifice, but it involved debauchery. It involved partying. It involved immorality. It involved fun for the human. What is the focus of the Israelite? Restoration with God, being made right, to be in fellowship with him. It's not some worldly, twisted way to have fun. If you read through the Greeks, I mean, one of the worst ones, I forget if it was uh, Diane, uh, there was a worship, and then they have, always would have prostitution around the temple, and then they would turn it into worship, and so you wouldn't feel bad about it. You would feel like this is good, and so they would elevate that position and you would be, quote-unquote, as one of these temple prostitutes, in some ways respected for the fun that you could provide. When you look at Rahab, it's likely that she was not only a prostitute, but would have been involved in cultic worship as well. And so her status in society is oftentimes not how we see it, right? We see it as a, as a, as a, as a, wrong or a sin. And so it's always seen on the rougher side of town, right? Not necessarily in these cultures would have been seen that way. In Greek culture, not. In in Roman culture, not. And oftentimes in the Canaanite culture, not that same way. That's why she has house and all these other things tied to it. But when you come to worship God, you see none of that worldliness tied in. You see the worshiper coming again and there's cost expended. Grace is not cheap. I put here as kind of an action step, uh, we would do well to remember that. God's grace is freely given, but it's not convenient or cheap. And I put here in in some ways, how can we remember that today? What is one thing that God instituted that we should do to remember what he's done? What do we celebrate? Lord's Supper. One of the reasons we try uh, to make it a time of reflection is because that's what God commanded it to be. It is supposed to be, a turn the dial of your mind and zero it in on one thing, what he's done for us. Now that is something he's done to help us as his church to remember it, but there is a need for us, and this is where the Israelite would have seen it, to, to have it be part of our daily life. One of the questions I hope to ask next week, remind me if I forget, is how do we remember better? What are ways that we can be more, aware, and I've tangible, how can God's sacrifice for us be something that is in front of us or t- that we touch every day? Is it's not going to be some trite formula. I know that it's not going to be a set of rules, but how is his sacrifice brought closer to our awareness in our daily lives? Because I want you to be fair with yourself a second. How close was God's sacrifice for you to the, the touch feel of your day? How close was it? How, how how did it permeate towards you? And I find and it often for me is closer when I'm wrestling with something. And then when things are fine, I have a way of really making sure it's something that's not in the recesses of my mind, but it's not touchable. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to describe what I mean by it. Because I'm not talking about you set your alarm, you're like, yep, God sacrificed for me. You know, it's not that kind of thing. But that it actually permeates our day in a normal way. For the Israelite, it permeated their day. This really was brought to bear. Um, What I love, though, as we get to reading number two, is even in the midst of that costliness, God never loses sight of who may be struggling. So in abounding grace, God provided a balance for the poor. And he did this in the regular offerings as well, an alternate offering Though, and I want you to notice this, the trespass offering remained a lamb. So if someone has reading number two, I guess I should look at the list and see. Otherwise, I have to call him Bob. Um, I just got a T down. Okay. All right, I like it. That could have been, been a host of people. I can make anyone's name, you know, Tom, Tim, Tressa. I almost added my name to T. better not do that.
2: Do
0: keep it simple. I like it. Okay, nice and short. And you have the mic if you're able to hold that. A- I did not. Uh, paper up there. It's 14, 21 through 32. I did put it on the screen for you. you did, I, uh, I do my nice best time. in this. recognize <laughs> Okay, Leviticus 14, 21 through 32.
3: If, however, they are poor and cannot afford these, they must take one male lamb as a guilt offering to be waived to make atonement for them, together with a tenth of an epith of the finest flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, a log of oil and two doves or two young pigeons, such as they can afford, one for a sin offering the other for a burnt offering. On the eighth day, they must bring them for their cleansing to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. The priest is to take the lamb for the guilt offering together with the log of oil and wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. He shall slaughter the lamb for the guilt offering and take some of its blood and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of the right hand and on the big toe of their right foot. The priest is to pour some of the oil into the palm of his own left hand and with his right forefinger sprinkle some of the oil from his palm seven times before the Lord. Some of the oil in his palm he is to put on the same place he put the blood of the guilt offering on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed on the lobe of the right hand and on the big toe of the right foot. The right foot. The rest of the oils on his palm is the priest shall put on the head of the one to be cleansed to make atonement for them before the Lord. Then he shall sacrifice the doves or the young pigeons such as the persons can afford, one as a sin offering, and the offering as a and the other as a burnt offering, together with the grain offering. In this way the priest will make atonement before the Lord on behalf of the one to be cleansed. These are the regulations for anyone who has a defiling skin disease, and who cannot afford the regular offerings for their cleansing.
0: Now you look here and you see the repeated process, accommodations though made for the poor. But I want us to notice two things. One, the guilt and trespass offering remains a lamb, just to I put that in front of us. And who paid the wages of sin, right? And the idea of wages, that is is payment. That's the trespass offering depicts that. So when you see the wages of sin as death, then you're saying, okay, death takes the payment, that's trespass offering. When we think of being made white as snow, that vernacular depicts the Purification offering. And so you see in Christ's sacrifice, the fulfillment of both of these. But on the trespass side, there is no lessening of the cost, but God lessens the cost for those who are poor. I didn't highlight in the last time, it repeats it. Whenever scripture repeats itself, it means it is what? It's all important, but it's, it's doubly important. Why? Why not say they'll do the same thing with the thumb and with the ear and with the toe as they did with the other one? No, they list it all out. Who else had their ear Thumb and toe touched. Who was that? First time we see that, when does that come up? Uh, Aaron. Aaron, the priests. And you see something, see this special thing done for the priests and now for the cleansing of these people who depicted sin and then being cleansed and being put into the community, the same actions taken. And by the way, it's twice blood and then with oil. And so we see this again connection, which is not to, to lessen what was done for the priest, but instead to tighten or or make that bond tighter. And so you don't see the priest becoming this elitist type mentality. They're seeing the people engage in the same cleansing that they would have to walk through. So in, in, in a way, when you see the priest going through the same cleansing that you would go through, depicting the cleansing from the sin, it reminds you that you're one people. When we look at the church, in essence, we are God's people. We are his church. This Sunday, we're going to be in 1 Peter 5, we're going to walk through God's last calling to the church. It starts with pastors, goes to people, and then to his possession. He moves through a list of what needs to be done by different components in his church, closes out all of 1 Peter, talking about his possession is what I say, his church as a whole, and what we all need to be involved in. And you see a lot of that same flow here. In the end, it's one people serving one God. We are his church, and we are serving our Savior. There is no hierarchy in God's kingdom in that sense or in his church and his possession. Instead, we have different roles that we fulfill before him, different responsibilities, but we are always brought back to being one people. Uh, If you encounter arrogance or elitism in a church, you already know that someone has gone outside the realms of their responsibility and have taken on a worldly Type of thinking. Uh, the concept of servant leadership comes up and you're going to see that when when the poorest person has, and that's why I think it's important that all the same things done as the priest is done for them. I'm using the wrong side <laughs> because it's right. All the way down here, I'm not in my right mind. That's what it is. But um, you see all that stuff going down. You recognize that everyone has an equality that's there, that they weren't suddenly made super more important than this poor person here, but instead are one people before God needing uh, that cleansing. Now, the conversation is going to move from diseases on my skin to houses being infected. We've already talked about garments, and it's just another reminder that it's not talking about the leprosy we think. It's not talking about Hansen's disease, but fits the more Greek definition of leprosy. And and actually, it shows you the beauty of God's word. Uh, and Hebrew is a very rich language in nuance, and so to sarat implies way more than we can almost capture with our own vernacular, which I love. I love seeing the depth of God's word and the depth of his people's language, uh, the Hebrew language, and how deep it is. And of course, you see how he's orchestrated. So we're going to dive into houses. Whoever has reading number three, Bob, it's you. And you put your name down at 10, and 10 is the same as eight. So I just want you to realize when that comes up, it's... (laughs) It's, that's what I see in my mind. I see eight. So uh, I just wanted you to know that. I looked to see what was blank. And I'm like, well, ten equals eight. You know, as I tell the kids, what's fair is what we say is fair here. You know, <laughs> you kidding. That's not. terrible logic. Uh, don't do what I say. You are reading reading number three, right? Thirty-three through forty-two. Are you ready for me to read? Yes, sir. And you need to take that microphone. Make sure that green light is lit there, and you're ready to go. Yes, yes. There you go. It's all you.
4: Okay, uh, 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When you have come into the land of Canaan, which I give you as a possession, and I put the leprous plague in a house in the land of your possessions, and he who owns the house comes and tells the priest, saying, It seems to me that there is some plague in the house. Then the priest shall command the uh, command that they empty the house, before the priest goes in uh, into it to examine the plague, that all that is in the house may not be made unclean, and afterward the priest shall go in to examine the house, and he shall examine the plague and indeed, if the plague is on the walls of the house uh, with ingrained streaks greenish or reddish, which appear to be deep in the wall. And the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house and shut up the house seven days. And the priest shall come again on the seventh day and look. And indeed, if the plague has spread on the walls of the house, then the priest shall command that they take away the stones in which is the plague, and they shall cast them into an unclean place outside the city. And he shall cause the house to be uh, scraped inside. And around, and the dust that they scrape off, they shall pour out in an unclean place outside the city. Then they shall take other stones and put them in the place of those stones, and he shall take other mortar and plaster the house. So look at this immensely, well, I
0: love the practicality of it. One, notice who put the plague in the house. Who's, the who the Lord puts the plague in the house. And then notice 36, I love this, tucked in this passage, practical advice. God says, empty the house before the priest shows up. Why? So, that everything's, up. so everything's not unclean. And I, I know, and this is, I just like to see practical things. Our God doesn't owe us any practicality that's not on him to prove to us that this warrants what we need to do. That's important. And we're gonna talk about that in the sense of how we approach him for worship. But see the street level practicality? Hey, get your couch out. No point losing the couch with the whole house. He put the plug in, you're going to go. Then you go in and you scrape out what's there. And, and notice what happens. What, what's similar? If the plague is surface deep, then the house is clean. Same with skin. But if it seems that the leprosy and think of the house and the walls as the skin, this is the skin of the house, right? And so it's messed up. And if it goes deeper than that, then you're going to have to remove the stones or go deep behind it. And you're going to put new stones in. We're about to look at what happens when that doesn't work. But notice that it's still surface depth is something that can be clean. Deeper is a bigger problem depicting a problem that kind of drives all the way through. On top of that, notice again, God's practicality. We don't worship God because he's practical. It's just that we do need to notice when our God gives us these insights to practical thinking. Now, every time a house is not clean, and I I always want to read this, I think, what a bummer to end up with a house with mold or junk in it and you got to lose your whole house. And it wasn't until Bob read there when I put a plague in a house that it dawns on you again, that God's sovereignty transcends even the most practical thing, like something on a wall of a house for the, uh, for the Israelites, they recognize again, God's complete presence and control. So whoever is reading number four, you can hop up, grab the mic, 43 through 53. And what we're looking at is what happens for an unclean house, and then what do we do when we clean or have a cleansing of a clean house at the end of it? Hello. Chapter 14, 43 to 53.
5: If, however, the mark breaks out again in the house after he has torn out the stones and scraped the house and after it has been replastered, then the priest shall come in and look again. If he sees the mark has indeed spread in the house, it is a leprous maligacy in the house. It is unclean. He shall therefore tear down the house, its stones and its timbers and all the plaster of the house, and he shall take them outside the city to an unclean place. Moreover... Moreover, whoever goes into the house during that time that he has put it under isolation becomes unclean until evening. Likewise, whoever lies down in the house shall wash his clothes, and whoever eats in the house shall wash his clothes. If, on the other hand, the priest comes in and looks again, and the mark has not indeed spread in the house after the house has been replastered, then the priest shall announce, pronounce the house clean because the mark has not reappeared. To cleanse the house, then, he shall take two birds and cedar wood and a scarlet string and hyssop, and he shall slaughter the one bird in the earthenware vessel over running water. Then he shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet string and the live bird, and he shall dip them in the blood of the slaughtered bird as well as the running water, and he shall sprinkle the house seven times. He shall thus cleanse the house with the blood of the bird and with the running water, along with the live bird and the cedar wood and with the hyssop, and with the scarlet string however he shall let the live bird go free outside the city into the open field so he shall make atonement for the house and it shall
0: be clean what do we have again on a house cleansing same bird same atonement same ritual earthen vessel what happens to that earthen vessel once the blood goes in it you have to break it right because the blood goes in it you can't reuse it you can't clean it so there's always this sacrifice there's always this cost and again cleansing costs a life And so this kind of wraps up, as we come to a close, what we're looking at. And that's the reading number five, which I'll do. um, 54, this is the law for all manner of plague of leprosy and skull and for the leprosy of a garment and of a house and for a rising and for a scab and for a bright spot to teach when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law of leprosy or the law of tesserat, which deals with this idea of skin infection and uncleanness. All of these skin laws from a practical side prevent the spread of infectious diseases and conditions. Quarantine time. The houses are immensely practical. We deal with mold in houses and you have to remediate the mold and take care of it and kill the mold. And so there's a huge practical side to when you see stuff in a house like this, that the house ultimately, if you can't get rid of it, it's broken down. We know through science that if you live in a house full of mold and things like that, you're going to get sick. It's going to cause you problems. So you see the, the the practical hygienic side of this, the health benefits. But the idea that we have is spiritual, it struck the Israelites of the condition of man. What is man affected by sin and the need for wholeness, which is holiness. So don't It's not God picking on someone who might be missing something or have a problem or priest who had a deformity couldn't serve because it's a constant reminder of God's holiness. So it's not zeroing out. We live in a hugely individualistic, that word's too much for me, um, society. And so we're going to take offense at everything, not recognizing that sin has stricken uh, this world. We live in the presence of the one and holy God. So those outside the camp relived, the disfiguration of sin and the cost of it. What happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned? Where were they sent? Out of the garden, out of perfection, out of the presence of God. And so we're seeing the effect of sin and what it does. We're reminded of sin's cost. Now, remember this, just because you had a skin disease didn't make you Committing a particular sin and being punished for it. That was the error that was made by the Pharisees even later on in Christ's time, and He re- refuted that. It was just a constant prod to see the pain and separation of sin. And what do you seek when you're separated this way? You seek redemption. Now let's fast forward. Look at the beauty of Christ's ministry. I mentioned this last week. I just want to, to you to think if you're reading the Gospels, make a mark every time He goes to lepers. And I want you to realize when a leper is outside of the community, they cannot be a part of it. They depict sin and separation from God. Who went to them? Christ did. And so in the illustration of sin separation, when our Savior came to earth, he re-illustrated what redemption looks like. And was it them going to him? But instead, he went to them. And it reminds us, I think it's fascinating. I hope when you're reading the gospel, as you see that he is giving an illustration of that community of his redemption. They're they're understanding God's love in this moment because the leper who was unclean that had to be cleaned before they could come in, the redeemer goes and cleanses them and they're white as snow. They don't have any remnant of the disease. You go back into community with the scab, with the scar, as long as the yellow hair is gone, the black hair is back, as long as it's skin deep, it can be skin deep and not spreading and go back in. These lepers, when they went back to the priest, can you imagine the priest and it's the same priest who had to condemn them, has to say they're okay to go in. And I have spots all over my arm and say, Tom, I'm picking the, the wise in here. It looks wise. I go to Tom and say, look, look, and I have nothing. It's not that I have remnants. I'm, I'm clean. Now, there's plenty of scars, so I don't want to show it too close. But, you know, the the illustration, God, Christ, he's got to have his mind blown. There was no reason for any leader in any town to ever doubt Christ at all. He had depicted the cleansing from sin in the most dramatic way. So it's not just him going to the outcast of society, which is how we think of it. He went to a group of people that depicted the cost of sin and he paid it in an illustrate. So the illustration of sin he used to illustrate his redemptive work. I think it's amazing. I hope when we read about lepers in the New Testament, remember Leviticus and that cost. Now we're going to keep running. And of course I didn't finish, but we're going to get chapter 12 done and we'll deal with 15 next week. And then our recap on our chatting. So that's less chatting time, more, more time to go through it. But I want to touch on childbirth. This is where we are in the ritual purity. And we had jumped over childbirth because I was going to do it with 15 and figured I'd do skin in one round. Didn't do that. So here we are in the reverse of it, dealing with childbirth, which links really well with 15, which deals with discharge. But childbirth is in its own place. And so whoever has reading number six, if they don't mind popping up and reading one through eight, this is a short flip back a little bit chapter. This is... A fascinating chapter, because there's not a commentator in the world that can explain why it's longer for a female and not a male, and what goes on. I have a different takeaway that I think addresses our culture a little bit uh, directly. But but, dive in, Eric. It's all you.
2: And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, "Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, if a woman have conceived seed, a born child." A born a man child, then she shall be unclean seven days, according to the days of the separation for her infirmity shall be unclean, shall she be unclean. And in the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, and she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. She shall touch no hollowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. If she, but if she bear a maid child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her separation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying th- threescore and six days." And when the six days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year and the burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation unto the priest who shall offer it before the Lord and make an atonement for her and she shall be cleansed. From the issue of her blood, this is the law for her that hath borne a male or a female. And if she be not able to bring a lamb, then she shall bring two turtles or two young pigeons to uh, the one for the burnt offering and the other for the sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for her and she shall be clean.
0: So here is a short law, but a constant one that deals with uh, a critical aspect and and an important aspect of life. Uh, We've moved away from, and this was after the animals, which dealt with our food, and we've talked all about the skin, but tuck between the skin and and the animals and this idea of childbirth and recognize that the blood loss is part of it, and we're going to deal with issues and discharges in chapter 15. Here is a very interesting chapter. It's a distinct responsibility and calling given to women in Genesis by God in Genesis. Um, But here's what's fascinating. God called or commanded us to have children, right, for women to bear children. Yet it causes uncleanliness. And so it's an interesting thought. And then here's the other one. Why is the time for a girl longer than for a boy? It's 40 days versus 80 days there. The answer is not easy, but some of it are evident. One writer notes this, and this is important motherhood is a woman's very crown and glory, yet it is a solemn reality that every child save one has been born with the taint of what? Sin. Sin. And so in the beauty of bearing a child, in the gift of life, you are reminded of what? What's you know, what's certain? What did Ben Franklin say? Taxes and what? Death. And death depicts, and I'm pointing to the Bible project thing that's not up there, but it it deals with sin and loss. And so as a child is born, we're reminded that they're born into a sinful world and they're born as a what? Sinner. And so there is a need to, in giving birth to have a restoration of wholeness because immediately when the new life comes out, it is tainted by the reality of being lost, of needing what? Salvation. It needs redemption. It's one who needs cleansing. And so you understand that in this beautiful image of birth, and God is not demeaning childbirth in any way, shape, or form. He's the one that commanded us to have children. He is reminding all of Israel that death permeates. Is that what most people think about when a child is born? when you have your new baby, you're thinking about life. You're thinking it's the most pure thing in the world, right? To have this baby. And yet he's not trying to demean this, but instead remind them that this child is also a lost sinner that needs redemption. Now, the difference in the time of uncleanliness is harder to understand the why. So I'm not going to dive in. I'm going to give you the suggestion that people say, one person wrote this. It says that if, God, if a female is born, she has the capability of bearing more children, and so that required a doubling of the time. I put here, but sin passes from Adam, so I think some holes are poked in that theory. I think there's an interesting application to our society. You know that when you have a child today, you cannot select the what? The gender. And this idea of gender identity, Christians get involved in or are confused by. I'm going to say this in the nicest way I can say it. It's not confusing. From a Bible perspective, this is not a confusing issue. And even in Leviticus, you see something. If you have a girl, how long are you impure? 80 days. If you have a boy, you're impure 40 days. Can the Israelite woman check undefined on a paper? They didn't have paper. Can they decide? And I want you to recognize something in our culture that wants to be completely fluent because that's their idea. And really what they want to do is rebel against God. You see, even in Leviticus, there was a clear distinction made. I had a girl, I had a boy. There was a definition of gender and there was a different response of time. I do want us to see this. The time is, is somewhat hard to explain and I think sometimes when things are hard to explain, instead of choking on the bones, I'm just going to leave them there and someone else can choke on them for a while if you want to. There's ideas, but, but it's not perfectly defined and it's not clear here. What is clear? What is similar about them? There was a time of impurity for all of them and the sacrifice For them was the same. There wasn't a difference in sacrifice. And so what is emphasized in here is that there is a gender distinction. I think that's clear to see. What's also emphasized is there's equality. It's seen clearly there. There is not a different sacrifice for a boy than a girl. It is the same one. The other thing that's layered is there's accommodations given for the poor. What did Mary bring? It was turtle doves. She brought the poor off. And that's how we know that Joseph wasn't raking it in as a carpenter at the time. That he was not of the wealthy class that was there. Understand this, that we, we live in the United States where there's less of a class system, much less of a class system than any time in history, but that he would have been tucked in a class war. When you're born poor, you stay poor. And you see that still in India. You still see that in other nations around the world. You even see it in Europe and some of the things where it's hard to break echelons of society uh, that are there. We as Americans don't always grasp this. This is a bonus Um, because we, we live in a society that doesn't necessarily try to limit. Doesn't mean people aren't limited. Sinful humans will try to do that. But this chapter closes with the offerings being made, a burnt offering of dedication and renewal, A purification offering because a child was born in sin and instantly needs purification. And as we've noted previously, God graciously provides for the less fortunate in the society, allowing a smaller and economically appropriate uh, gift. Um, Here's interesting though, sin and death are serious. Even in the midst of what would be the most joyous gift from God, they are always reminded of their need and the new child's need. Life centered around God and his goodness and his character. Someone from the outside reads this and they say, well, God is trying to, to reign on a joyous occasion. God is trying to dampen the enthusiasm of parents holding a baby. And you see all the accusations because what do we focus in on? If someone has a new baby. We are thinking only of who? The baby and them. Our eyes often do not turn to God. The Israelites were constantly reminded of God. Life centered around God and his goodness and his character. And so God's chosen people had gracious reminders placed through all of life to keep them focused on the only truth that mattered. And I put here, I hope that as New Testament believers, we can have that same Focus. I'm going to give us a transition. Basically, this carries us to chapter 15. If you've signed up, you get to, to read that. That means you can't skip next week. That's nice. Bob, you're on eight. So I just want you to know you can't skip either. Um, so you're listed here. And we'll go through this chapter 15 uh, fairly quickly. Just so you know, you can practice your reading. This is one of the more awkward chapters in Leviticus, to be honest with you. Uh, it deals with life things that are just awkward. So um, that's there, but it's a part of life. It's critical to understand this because it's the full range of life. God never hid from reality. And I think that's amazing about God. When you read the Bible story, the awkward and the mistakes and the stumbles, we know David made huge mistakes. He's the man after God's own heart. But what do you know about David? Right away, when you see David, I think of who? Bathsheba. I think of the murder, adultery. All these things that took place and yet we hear that God doesn't hide that story. He doesn't hide from things that may be awkward. Please put some thought behind the chapters we've been through and and think about what you may have learned, what you can apply, some personal application that ties in. But one thing I want us to all be thinking and talking about is how does understanding the sacrificial system help us grasp the weight of what Christ did for us, to bring to life Isaiah, washed white as snow, or paid the trespass, and the verses that tie into it. So spend a little time reading through it. If you've got time, read 1 through 15 again to get a grip of it, and that'll be uh, next week on the 14th. Um, we'll wrap up for the year.